Welcome to the FOI Equip podcast, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. Hi, everybody. I'm Chris Katolka. You know, the scriptures tell the story of God's chosen people and his plan to bring salvation to the whole world through Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Come see why it matters that God would choose an ancient people to bring a timeless hope to a lost and broken world. Now, listen, I want to encourage you to go to foiequip.org to sign up to be on our mailing list. You're going to receive vital information on how you can join our free live online FOI Equip classes. Now get ready. Join our expert staff on the FOI Equip podcast as we teach the scriptures, unravel the colorful world of Jewish culture and customs, reveal God's prophetic plan, and so much more. Now enjoy this teaching from FOI Equip. Well, welcome back. It's week two of two parts on patriarchs and presidents, how America has blessed Israel. And uh, we did begin this study last week, as Steve mentioned, and we're going to just have a brief review and continue on and finish up tonight. Um, I mentioned four books last week that could be our textbooks. And let me say this, as the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, consider what I say and may the Lord give you understanding in these things. Search the scriptures and see if these things are so. And you can also search the textbooks if you'd like to continue this study um, and uh, build on what we've thought about here over these two weeks, because it certainly is not exhaustive. We thought about uh, two presidents last week. And uh, we're going to think about uh, three more this evening. And uh, you could think about uh, all the presidents. I'll show you another way to do that. But uh, I would highly recommend these four books as a great start. And they're not all about just the presidents, obviously, but Elwood McQuaid's foundational text, It Is No Dream, from the Friends of Israel, beautifully redone a few years ago. Another book that's very essential and very easy to read, Hitler's Cross by our friend Erwin Lutzer. Then, of course, a familiar face, Chris Katelka. He's really done a great job with this new book, Israel Always. Also easy to read, short chapters, very informative, very concise. I commend it to you. And then, finally, The Case for, Not for Zionism by Dr. Thomas Ice. And I'd encourage you to look at those, and certainly if you want to build on what we have begun here, that would be a great way to do so. You know, the biblical basis for blessing Israel, it, it all begins, of course, with the Abrahamic covenant. And we thought about that at uh, just a basic level last week, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the land clause, the descendants clause, the blessing clause, the promise that God would bless those who bless Israel, that he will curse those who fail to bless them, two different Hebrew verbs there for curse. And finally, in the people of Abraham, the people of Israel, all the earth will be blessed. We know that those blessings are personified in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the ultimate descendant of Abraham. But that doesn't rule out a literal future for the people, nation, and land of Israel. They're still fully the recipients of all the literal blessings that God promised to Abraham. And they will be granted. They will be fulfilled, literally. You know, we in America are in an interesting place here in our country because we're talking about evidence that we have been a blessing to the people of Israel, and surely we have, and we're seeing that. But we also balance that with the reality that we are not Israel. Just as the church has not replaced Israel, America has not replaced Israel. You know, some people sort of go off on a tangent with America. Uh, they have a little bit different understanding of eschatology than we do and in some cases. And some people almost want to say, you know, America is the kingdom. And we could, in the spirit of uh, Paul's words in Romans 11, we could be arrogant and haughty and proud and lifted up and begin to think America must be the kingdom. Because 
my goodness, look at how God has blessed America for 400 years and made it the the center of the Christian world and the, the mission-sending nation of the whole world. America must be unique. America must be the place from which God will establish his kingdom on earth. And of course, this is not true. <laughs> the blessings of God on America are, are just a glimpse, just a, a, a tiny taste of the blessing that he will pour out on the world through the nation of Israel when he truly establishes his kingdom on earth. It'll be much greater. The Put America in the shadows forever. Um, it, it's so amazing to us in this sinful world to see how God has blessed and used America. But America is not the place from which God will establish his kingdom on earth. And and sometimes it's kind of hard for us, although I think it's maybe getting easier, and I say that with sadness. It's getting easier for us to realize the reality, the truth, that America is, is a Gentile, dare I say pagan, nation. We're one of the nations of the world of which Jesus spoke in Luke 21, 24, when he said that Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The world uh, today is under the control of Gentile nations since the days of Nebuchadnezzar and the captivity of Jerusalem and Judah into Babylon. And the great nations that would outline Gentile world history, given in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, finally revived Rome at the end of the age, and America is within that sector of Gentile nations that will trample upon Jerusalem and rule the world until, thank God for that blessed word, until Christ returns, the times of the Gentiles will be ended, the kingdom of God will begin on the earth from Jerusalem in Israel for a thousand years. So we have to, to keep these truths in balance. We are praise God and we're grateful and we're blessed and we're thankful for how God has blessed America and how God has used America to bless Israel. But as we'll see tonight, even in the blessing, you know, sometimes there's there's fear and trepidation about what it will cost to bless Israel in the midst of all the the political turmoil and upheaval on the world scene. And so calculated decisions are made. And things are not always done just out of purity of heart and motives, like we might hope. And yet, out of all of that, God has used America to be a blessing to Israel. And uh, we hope that continues. And we pray for our nation. And we trust that God will help our leaders to continue to seek to be a blessing to the people of Israel. For as we saw last week, as we began that really is critical to our survival as a nation. Now, we looked at a contemporary example. We began last week, and we talked about the Trump administration and its relation to the people of Israel and how they, uh, of course, the embassy was moved to Jerusalem, and we got into a number of details related to the, uh, the 70th anniversary of the founding of the modern state of Israel during the Trump presidency. We also then, as Steve noted, we uh, took a tour of some of the historical background. How did we get to this place? How did uh, presidents draw on a legacy that they already had, even by the time of our first founding fathers, as we call them, and those that framed our constitution, they all already had a rich legacy and history behind them in our country of belief and understanding and seeking to bless Israel, going back to our pilgrim fathers and the pilgrims and Puritans who came to our country, as Steve noted, they were using, they were reading, they were studying the Geneva Bible. And I guess in light of Steve's comments, I need to qualify and say the, the world's first study Bible of both uh, Hebrew scriptures and New Testament, certainly in English, at a pivotal time in history following the Reformation, following the development of printing in Europe, 
where people now really for the first time in terms of the modern world, the new world that's coming on here uh, around uh, 1600 is the beginning of the 17th century and the, the beginnings of our country here in America. Um, there's, a, there's a whole new approach now, a whole new opportunity for people who now are beginning to become more literate out of the Reformation. They can actually read a Bible now if they have one in their language because of the printing press and other uh, new factors in, in the development of society at this time. They now have money to buy a Bible that fits in their hands, not a big gigantic pulpit Bible that's too big to carry, but one they can hold in their hands, they can hold on their lap, they can set on their table, they can open it, and they can read it in their own language, they can understand it, they can study the notes on the bottom of the page. And we saw how providentially last week the Geneva Study Bible, the Geneva Bible, in God's sovereignty, he placed men there in Geneva who inserted notes because of influences we didn't even go into that are amazing to me, but they inserted notes in several places, most notably Romans 11, that teach that God has a future for Israel, that he'll fulfill every promise he's ever given, every prophecy he's ever made regarding his chosen people, that as he's been with them in their biblical past, so he is with them today in the strategic present and will be with them through the fulfillment of the prophetic future. And here is a slide that uh, we did not show last week because we were having some technical difficulties and Chris used his version of the slides. And I wanna insert it tonight because we didn't use it last week. And I love to use this slide because it comes to us from a man named Dr. Robert Smith. He is an Evangelical Lutheran Church in America pastor. In other words, he doesn't believe what we believe about Israel, the future of Israel. But he wrote his doctoral dissertation at Baylor University on these issues. And here's what he said at one point in discussing the Geneva Bible. He said the Geneva Bible helped create a space for Jews to be theologically constructed as a positive actor with an English Protestant apocalyptic hope. Now he's saying that not with glee, like we would say it, but he's saying it as a matter of historical fact. And let me interpret his PhD speak for you. He's simply saying the Geneva Bible taught that God still has a future for Israel. And this teaching began to make its way into English Puritanism, English Protestantism, with regard to their understanding of future events. And so that to me is a strong uh, statement from someone who does not have our same view of these things uh, uh, to talk about the effect, the impact of the Geneva Bible. And I wrote an article for the Friends of Israel blog on this topic, the source of America's love for Israel. We looked at this quote last week. We're almost finished with a short review here. Dr. William Watson, now with the Lord, talked about New England Puritans who understood Israel as the focal point of the future millennial reign. And you may remember I was saying this is one of the, a great untold story of history because most people who talk about the Puritans aren't interested in Israel, frankly. And uh, most of us who talk about Israel aren't as interested in the Puritans as we might be. We went on from there and we looked at our first president, George Washington, his historic visit to uh, Newport, Rhode Island. And you can go there to torosynagogue.org and uh, find all, all the um, documents and information there, pictures of this beautiful historic site. And of course, how Washington picked up on the language that had been read to him when he visited. And he wrote back in a letter how that the government of the United States will give to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance. And this is in the context of the passage of the Bill of Rights, what we call our First Amendment, and religious freedom, 
and this has become an important statement used in uh, the legal history of our country. And we talked about that just briefly last week. And we ended right about here at jewishvirtuallibrary.org. And I would invite you, this is another, certainly another route you can go to build on our study. And it has some amazing quotes from other presidents that we're not covering. Um, and it is truly astounding to see how several of them, long before the modern state of Israel, talked about a homeland for the Jewish people, uh, the ultimate uh, need for a place for the people of Israel to go back to settle in their homeland, in their ancient home that God promised to Abraham. So I'd invite you to read those. Wonderful source of information, uh, jewishvirtuallibrary.org. And by the way, while we're here and right before we go into all of our brand new material tonight, um, let me say last week, Chris had uh, prompted me to give my contact information, and I failed to uh, get that in, and I was going to mention it right at the beginning tonight and forgot again. So let me just uh, say for those who are joining us, perhaps even for the first time tonight, I'm Paul Scharf. Wonderful privilege to be a church ministries representative for the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. I'm in my fifth year with the ministry. I serve in the Midwest. And uh, I have a web page for all of my resources within my ministry for the Friends of Israel on sermonaudio.com. It's sermonaudio.com slash P S C H A R F P Sharf. You can always contact me there, find sermons and uh, columns and all kinds of documents and resources. And you can also sign up for our weekly email that we send out uh, for our ministry. We'd love to add you to the list if you're interested. And it's so great to have this privilege and opportunity to join you here for Equip. And thank you for being with us tonight. Dr. McQuaid uh, uh, said in his book uh, that the post-World War II world reeled under the impact of the disclosure of the indescribable horrors of the Holocaust. And certainly we understand the impact that World War II, that the Holocaust had uh, on the things that we're about to discuss tonight. We're gonna jump way ahead in history, obviously covering or not covering lots of ground in between George Washington and uh, our next subject tonight, as we go to one a man, you might guess what we're going to talk about, who's around at the time of the close of the Second World War, as when, as Thomas Ice says, Nazi Germany's heinous, despicable treatment of the Jewish people created worldwide sympathy and a favorable environment for the Jewish people. And the man we're going to think about next, of course, is Harry Truman, sort of an unlikely president. Very interesting background. I was just watching some things about his life story today. Um, very interesting man. Had served in the Senate for about nine years before he was picked to be the running mate for FDR in the 1944 election. Of course, I believe it was just 82 days into the new term that FDR uh, died. And uh, Harry Truman was thrust onto the world stage, apparently having no knowledge of the atomic bomb program that uh, the United States was engaged in, though he'd soon be utilizing that, of course, to bring an end to the World War uh, II. I'll never forget uh, interviewing a World War II veteran a number of years ago, and he just almost wept and was just visibly shaken as he as he shook his head and just said, thank God that President Harry Truman dropped those bombs to end World War II. Thank God that he did that. I'll always remember that. And uh, so much to say about Harry Truman, but we're not here just to study presidents. We're thinking about his impact on the nation of Israel. And here's a quote from that uh, famous day, May 14, 1948. When Truman said, I had faith in Israel before it was established, 
and I have faith in it now. He said, I am proud of my part in the creation of this new state. Our government was the first to recognize the state of Israel. And I'd like to read to you here a little bit from Elwood McQuaid and uh, this his wonderful uh, book, It Is No Dream. And I'm reading here from uh, beginning on page 103. If you have the book, you'll want to go and look at the larger context. And there's so much going on here and uh, so much background. Very interesting. Basically, there was uh, turmoil within the Truman administration of what to do with this new announcement, the independence of the new state of Israel. And uh, page 103 here of McQuaid, he writes, essentially there were two schools of thought among members of the Truman administration regarding Israel's independence. One school argued that a Jewish state would constitute the first stable democracy in the Middle East. The other argued that Israel probably wouldn't survive. Discussions on this subject were often so acrimonious and heated that they permanently fractured longstanding relationships. Uh, he goes on, I won't read all of this, but uh, dropping down, McQuaid says, caught in the middle of the fracas was President Harry S. Truman. The final decision rested on the shoulders of the man who sat behind the Oval Office desk bearing the famous wooden sign with the inscription, the buck stops here. Clark Clifford, who was the White House counsel, wrote about Truman, and McQuaid quotes at length here from Clark Clifford. And I won't read all of it, but he talks about five factors that he believes, Clark Clifford believes, that is, determined what Truman was going to do with regard to this whole issue. And the fifth and final one is that he says he was a student and believer in the Bible since his youth. Going on now to page 104 from McQuaid, he talks, uh, quoting Cl Clifford again, saying, from his reading of the Old Testament, he felt the Jews derived a legitimate historical right to Palestine. This is Clifford's words. And he sometimes cited such biblical lines as Deuteronomy 1.8, Behold, I have given up the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land which the Lord hath sworn unto your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now here's where it gets really interesting on a personal level. As McQuaid uh, continues uh, writing, quote, Minutes after David Ben-Gurion made the declaration, the Declaration of Israeli Independence, May 14, 1948, in Tel Aviv, the world heard from Washington, quote, statement by the president, the government, this government has been informed that a Jewish state has been proclaimed in Palestine and recognition has been requested by the provisional government thereof. The United States recognizes the provisional government as the de facto authority of the new state of Israel. End quote. President Truman had said yes. Again, McQuaid continuing, the lead up to Truman's momentous decision seems straight out of Hollywood. And here McQuaid is going to quote from jewishhistory.org and a blog titled President Harry Truman, Friend of the Jews. Here's what it says. Enter one of the strange stories of history. President Truman had served as an artillery captain in World War I, and one of the members of his battalion was a Jewish man named Eddie Jacobson. After the war, the two of them went into an unlikely partnership and opened a haberdashery store in Kansas City. The store went bankrupt after three years. But Truman and Jacobson remained loyal friends, which is unusual in itself. The blog goes on to Zionist leader Kaim Weizmann, who was by then old and half blind, traveled to the U.S. to try and see Truman to get him to reinforce 
American support of the partition plan. The partition plan, as I understand it, basically saying to support the Declaration of Independence. Um, as it was determined, the land would be partitioned as the United Nations was involved in all of this. And then uh, it's the blog says Truman refused. So Truman here was for a time, he, he was negative. The Jewish leadership put on whatever pressure it could, but to no avail, Truman would not see Weizmann. Then, continuing the quote, the Jews sent in Eddie Jacobson. That was Truman's war buddy. It's been written in Truman's memoirs in many, many other places. Jacobson said, Mr. President, Harry, you've got to do me this one favor. See this tired old man? He's come halfway across the world to see you. Just give him a few minutes of your time. And Truman reluctantly agreed. Weissman was a great diplomat. He told Truman, you have the opportunity of the ages. If you'll stay strong now, you'll go down in history for all eternity. And Truman was impressed by it. And he called Warren Austin at the UN to inform him of American policy. For added drama, when the call came, Austin was in the middle of a speech about how America was backing out of the partition plan. But when he returned from the phone call, he said, quote, President Truman has instructed me that the United States supports in full the partition plan as adopted by the United Sta uh, Nations and will work to see it implemented, end quote. When that happened, the situation turned. The state was declared on May 15th, 1948. I believe that's because of the lateness of the hour of time in Israel um, at this point in the day. But the U.S., May 14th, 1948, signed on to back Israeli independence. And then finishing the quote of McQuaid uh, utilizing this blog from jewishhistory.org says not two weeks later Wiseman presented Truman with the traditional gift Jews give to heads of state a Torah scroll and there's a famous picture and it's in the McQuaid book or you can see it uh, you can find it easily online of this presentation of the Torah scroll and when Truman saw it he said I always wanted one of those so I'll let you look up that Famous, amazing picture, Harry Truman with a big smile on his face. By the way, you can find lots of information about these things on the presidential websites um, for each of the presidents, or even those that we're not talking about. Uh, just uh, search for uh, on their presidential websites for their relationships with the people of Israel and things. And you'll find much more here about Harry Truman on his uh, presidential library website as well. Uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer says Hitler's final solution was not final. Praise God. God preserved a remnant of the Jews, established Israel as a state, and today is calling many Jews to faith in Christ, their Messiah. Uh, who would have thought just seven years after Kristallnacht, which, by the way, we're coming up on the 75th anniversary of Kristallnacht on November 9 and 10, and we know that just three weeks later, the Friends of Israel began. Who would have thought in those amazingly awful days that in just seven years, Hitler would be dead uh, as he launched the Holocaust? In seven years, he'd be dead. His, his nation would be destroyed, his great army in tatters. But the people of Israel would survive and come back from all the nations of the world. They've been neither annihilated nor totally assimilated, but they've maintained their language, culture, religion, and heritage to be able to go back and begin the modern state of Israel. Life on the streets of Jerusalem is about to begin again. Well, here's our next subject. Maybe this is one you would never guess that we might study tonight. Richard Nixon, he's said to be anti-Semitic. Uh, perhaps he was even caught saying, using some anti-Semitic slurs 
uh, in recordings and in conversations. And uh, Richard Nixon has a, obviously a very controversial history, and uh, that's not our total subject tonight. I'll let you uh, look up all things about Nixon and make your own uh, form your own opinion about all of them. But he did say this about the Jewish people, Americans admire a people who can scratch a desert and produce a garden. The Israelis have shown qualities that Americans identify with. I believe that. Now we're looking at Richard Nixon, not just because of this quote, but because of something absolutely astounding that happened in October of 1973 while Nixon was president. And I'm quoting here from a book, first of all, uh, Dr. David Jeremiah, What in the World is Going On? And he quotes from Dr. Randall Price and his book, uh, Jerusalem in Prophecy. Uh, Dr. Price is, of course, a board member for the Friends of Israel and a great friend of ours. And uh, David Jeremiah writes, on page 209 of What in the World is Going On, quote, the inception of the Battle of Armageddon has something of a historical precedent in miniature. Author Randall Price recounts the event, and he quotes here from Price, again, the book Jerusalem in Prophecy. The Yom Kippur War began at 2 p.m. on October 6, 1973. That was Yom Kippur, and it was the Sabbath. It was a surprise attack on Israel from the Arab nations of Egypt and Syria, which were intent on the destruction of the Jewish state. Overwhelming evidence of large-scale Arab military preparations on the morning of October 6 had compelled Chief of Staff David Elisar to ask the United States to help restrain the Arabs. U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger urged Prime Minister Golda Meir, who, by the way, uh, was born, I believe, in Kiev in the Ukraine, but grew up not far from me down the road here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and taught school there before she went to make Aliyah back before the modern state of Israel began. But quoting again here, Kissinger urged Prime Minister Golda Meir to not issue a preemptive strike but to trust international guarantees for Israel's security, to which Mrs. Mayer, in her characteristic um, upfront manner, retorted, quote, by the time they come to save Israel, there won't be an Israel. Continuing here from Price, when international intervention finally came in calling for ceasefire negotiations, Israel's casualties had mounted to 2,552 dead, and over 3,000 wounded, and it would have been much more if Israel hadn't realized that if nobody was going to fight for them, they were going to have to fight for themselves. For that reason, Israel has come to rely upon their own defenses for their security. That attack is just a foretaste of what Israel can expect in the future when the worst attack in its history will come and will be centered on Jerusalem. In that day, there will be no allies, not even reluctant ones, but scripture has prophesied otherwise. At the right time, Jerusalem's Savior will return. End quote from Price, continuing now with Jeremiah. He says, as Price tells us, Israel in this last war will be forced to rely on herself and not depend on assistance from allies. That is the similarity between the inception of the Battle of Armageddon and the Yom Kippur War, its miniature historical precedent. So Israel's war for independence at the very beginning in 1948, and uh, they're said to have uh, really have, they're thought to really have two more wars that, uh, that settled that independence. The Six-Day War in 1967, the Yom Kippur War, in October, October 6 to 24, 1973, these are critical times in the history of the modern state of Israel and sort of interrelated as far as how we see Israel today in the form that it's in, in terms of the land that it possesses today uh, and how the boundaries are set. October 6, uh, this was a surprise attack on Yom Kippur. 
Um, you can find some of this information at nixonfoundation.org um, and other places as well. And I'm going to quote from a blog article that I looked tonight, and I believe it's no longer online as it was at one time when I saw it. Uh, and it also is utilizing some of the uh, wording from, uh, I believe, from nixonfoundation.org in telling this story. But uh, if you go, I don't know if anyone has ever been to the Nixon Library, Presidential Library and Museum in Yorba Linda, California. Apparently there you can see the Bible from which his mother read to Richard Nixon as a boy, open to the book of Esther. And uh, a blog article from a, a woman named Dora Von Leahy, as I said, it's no longer online that I can see but it's called God Uses U.S. Presidents for His Purpose, Israel, Golda Meir, and Nixon. And I'm going to quote here from that article. And as I set, as I do, let me set this up by sharing some statistics uh, that it actually quotes. And I've seen some different numbers than this. I'm sure it depends what you're counting and how you're counting. But according to this source, the Yom Kippur War, first of all, was an attack by Syria and Egypt on Israel, Syria and Egypt, backed by nine Arab states and armed by the Soviet Union, attacking Israel on Yom Kippur when the nation would be at rest. All the people would be silent uh, and not unprepared for such an attack. And uh, according again to these statistics, Syria outnumbered Israel in tanks 1,400 to 180 Egypt outnumbered Israel in soldiers 80,000 to 436. Israel basically had two possibilities, seek help from the United States, humanly speaking, or use nuclear weapons. The world was closer to a nuclear war than many ever realized. And the other possibility, of course, would be to simply allow Israel to be destroyed. So quoting now from this blog article by Dora Von Lee, who again utilizes information from the Nixon website, um, it states as follows, quote, as a young boy growing up, Richard Nixon's Christian Quaker mother told him that one day he would be in a powerful position and a situation would arise where Israel and the Jews needed his help. When it did, he was to help them. It is reported that Nixon said he heard the voice of his mother saying these words to him when he responded to the call and plea for help from Golda Meir at 3 a.m., the phone call in October of 1973 during the Yom Kippur War. The attacks on October 6, 1973 were a coordinated surprise attack on Yom Kippur, the holiest of days in the Jewish calendar, and a time when the entire nation comes to a virtual standstill. Even non-observant Jews honor this holy day by fasting, staying home, or going to synagogue, and refraining from the use of fire, electricity, and communications systems. Israel could not have been more vulnerable. There had been concern about possible attacks, but until just shortly before the attacks began, quote, Israeli intelligence was not able to determine conclusively that an attack was imminent, end quote. Continuing the quote from the blog, to demonstrate how much Israel was up against, 180 Israeli tanks faced over 1,400 Syrian tanks. Closer to the Suez Canal, a mere 436 Israeli infantry were poised to fight over 80,000 Egyptian soldiers. The attacks by Egypt and Syria were backed by nine Arab states as well as the Soviet Union. By the second day, the slaughtering of Israeli troops and destruction of their equipment had been such a blow. Moshe Dayan, the Minister of Defense, who had been a hero in the Six-Day War, started talk about pulling back and even possible surrender. Golda Meir, Prime Minister of Israel, resisted this. But she did have an aide secure lethal pills from her doctor just in case her Arab enemies prevailed. Mayur would take her own life. 
U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger and Meyer's relationship was, to say the least, a bit rocky. When assistance was requested from him, Kissinger's reported response was to let Israel, quote, bleed a little, end quote. So at 3 a.m., Golda Meir picked up the phone and called President Richard M. Nixon and asked for help. It is reported that Nixon heard the prophetic word in the voice of his mother as he listened to Meir. By the time she hung up, Golda Meir had the weapons and help her country needed that swung the pendulum to Israel's favor to bring an end to the Yom Kippur War. To this day, Richard Nixon is highly regarded in Israel, and Prime Minister Golda Meir and Nixon kept in frequent touch throughout the ordeal. And for the rest of Meir's life, she referred to Nixon as my president. She said, for, quote, for generations to come, all will be told of the miracle of the immense planes from the United States bringing in the material that meant life to our people. The story of the Yom Kippur War, incredibly significant in the history of the modern state of Israel, really in world history. I wonder how many people in our country even know anything about it at all. Certainly vital for us who love Israel to have a grasp of some of these basic facts, isn't it, about the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War and how these events shaped details that we're seeing now in our everyday news feed. Well, we're going to look at our final president, and it's not me, at least not yet. How do I look standing there in the Oval Office? Anyone have any thoughts about that? Uh, of course, I'm not in the real Oval Office. I'm not even inside as it appears I am. I'm outside a rope. Anyone know where I am? I'm in the only full-scale replica Oval Office in the whole world. That's at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. My favorite president. He was elected when I was in sixth grade. Um, let's see, sixth grade? No, he was elected when I was in seventh grade. And uh, he was president till I was in college. And I guess I just thought, you know, he'd sort of be there forever or else someone just like him would be to take his place. How little I understood the world. <laughs> but he's my favorite of all. I love studying Ronald Reagan. Uh, I watch videos sometimes, both the Reagan Library and the Reagan Foundation have uh, just incredible source of information. Of course, he's probably the first president to be so recorded on video and so forth. They're still adding all kinds of new videos. And you can find the things we're going to talk about here on video and just watch it yourself. Watch the whole event. That's pretty neat. By the way, one little anecdote about the Reagan Library, which I would highly uh, suggest that you visit uh, if you've never been there. And uh, when Reagan, of course, was still alive when they were building it and before he was suffering from Alzheimer's uh, that prevented him from being involved, that he wanted this full-scale replica of the Oval Office. And they, they said, Mr. President, we have a problem because this is in the basement you see of the library. So there's not enough headspace. Of course, Reagan didn't take him long to respond very simply. Well, dig out the floor. I want an exact replica of the Oval Office. And so they did. So the floor is lower. That's the lowest part. And you have to step down. They don't actually allow you to step down into the office. You just stand outside the rope there and see it. Well, I want to take you back to the fall of 1981. And uh, Ronald Reagan uh, welcoming Menachem Begin, the Prime Minister of Israel who had a very interesting and impactful time as prime minister, a very uh, significant life story even beyond that. But he, of course, was involved at the Camp David Accords, um, 1978, President Jimmy Carter negotiating with Anwar Sadat in Egypt of a peace treaty between Israel and Egypt. This is his first trip. This is the, the first trip by Begin. Uh, by any Israel Israeli uh, leader 
to the Reagan administration. Interestingly, I found that Begin had visited President Jimmy Carter after the election in the fall of 80, one last time. He comes back a little bit less than a year later and for the first time, and for the first of many uh, visits by Israeli leaders during the Reagan administration, uh, visits with Reagan at length, September 9th, 1981. And again, you can watch this whole ceremony on YouTube from the videos there from the Reagan Library. Uh, just a couple of quotes that I'll pull from it. And I'm sure these are just a couple of things of many that we could say, or a quote from President Reagan regarding um, the state of Israel. But I, I just found these sort of fascinating. He says, you know, I welcome this chance to further strengthen the unbreakable ties between the United States and Israel and to assure you of our commitment to Israel's security and well-being. He goes on to make some very interesting statements that I don't think most presidents would make. I do believe President Reagan was a true evangelical believer in Christ. And he also apparently had a fascination with Bible prophecy. Now, he couldn't push that, I'm sure, too far in certain contexts, and uh, you'll listen. He even has, you know, some language in the in his presentation here that we wouldn't endorse as a biblical statement of how um, of how we are all God's children and so forth. But he he goes to this. He can't help himself but from going to this unique angle and saying the prophet Ezekiel spoke of a new age. When land now, how many presidents would even know about this or be interested, much less put it in their speech? But he says, when land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden and waste and ruined cities are now inhabited, we saw how miraculously you transformed and made the desert bloom. And you can, again, you can listen to the full speech, see the full ceremony, and uh, get the full context. And uh, I just thought it was fascinating that Reagan would uh, put an allusion to Bible prophecy from the prophet Ezekiel into his speech here at this time and talk about how that Israel basically has a prophetic destiny and that they are, in some sense, you know, in his estimation, apparently fulfilling that. I don't know that Reagan could have written a systematic theology about uh, future events or eschatology, but I, I do believe, again, he was a true believer in Christ, and I think he was fascinated by these issues. Here is a picture I took, again, at the Reagan Library of several menorah, if I'm saying that correctly, the plural of menorah, that were given to him as different gifts during his time in office, and uh, you'd have to read, of course, each one of those little cards, but uh, I thought that was interesting that they had a display there. I don't believe Reagan ever went to Israel as president. That's interesting, but uh, certainly received delegations from Israel, as I said, many, many times, and again, you can utilize the wonderful websites they have for the Reagan Library and the Reagan Foundation, as well as the YouTube pages, find all kinds of material. If you want to look further, you could, maybe, maybe there's even somebody listening who for some kind of presentation they need to do sometime could, uh, you know, could do a whole presentation on any one of these presidents or any one of these historical uh, periods that we're talking about. That brings us to a final question. We've looked at five presidents. We've surveyed some interesting and important history. And, you know, there really is no question in my mind, in light of the qualifications I set out as we began tonight, but thinking humanly speaking in terms of the, the direction of history over the last 400 years, there's just no question America has blessed Israel. God has used America to bless the people and the nation and the land of Israel. 
And we've had leaders who understood and believed that God would bless those who bless his chosen people, curse those who curse them. And God has used America in the course of shaping the modern state of Israel. America has blessed Israel. The only question is, are you blessing Israel? And you see, the wonderful thing is, whatever our country is going to do, whatever our leaders are going to do, you don't have to wait for a president. You don't have to wait for a presidential proclamation or executive order or for Congress to pass a law. You don't have to run for office. You don't have to be famous. You can apply these things in your own personal life. You can consider and meditate on the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and the many places that it's reiterated throughout the scriptures, you can think about this rich history that we have here in our country. And perhaps uh, someday take some time, sit down with a pad of paper and think through some of these things, pick out some things that interest you that you want to study and develop further. And then also take a blank sheet and ask yourself this question and write down some thoughts. What am I doing? to literally, physically, actually be a blessing to the people of Israel, of whom God has said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Patriarchs and Presidents, how America has blessed Israel. I hope it's been an encouragement to you. And again, uh, this gives a summary of the class. I'll just say again, uh, you can find my material or connect with me. Be glad to answer any questions you have even after tonight at sermonaudio.com slash pscharf. Thank you and God bless you. And Steve, I'll turn it back to you. Thank you for listening to our FOI Equip podcast. Again, I want to remind you to go to foiequip.org and sign up to be on our mailing list. We'd love to see you at one of our free live online FOI Equip classes. Also, be sure to listen to our other podcasts like the Jew and Gentile podcast hosted by yours truly and Steve Herzig. Also, the Gesher podcast hosted by Ty Perry. You can find out more ways to get involved with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry by visiting foiequip.org. FOI Equip is an outreach of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. We are a worldwide evangelical ministry proclaiming biblical truth about Israel and the Messiah while bringing physical and spiritual comfort to the Jewish people. Hey, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon.